This is Big Sky Lead, a dive into the stories about how government and politics drive the direction of Montana. This podcast is from the reporters of the Montana State News Bureau in Helena, your eyes and ears on state government. It's produced by me, Tom Bridge. Our team brings you an examination of Montana's new landscape with new laws, a new governor, and a new Republican dominance across all of state government. So, Rob, the topic of grizzly bears is something that we've been covering for a long time. Grizzly bears are something that everyone around this area are familiar with. So why did we decide to pursue this series now in 2021? 2021 was full of grizzly bear news. It was bears killing people. It was bears creating gigantic traffic jams of fans and admirers. It was bears getting all over the Montana State Legislature and the halls of Congress. And the combination of all that pointed out to us in newsrooms across Montana that we as reporters and our readership, our audiences, have an awful lot to learn before we start making some really big decisions about the fate of grizzly bears and our coexistence with them. So we thought we better start laying out what are these big questions, who's dealing with them, and what do people need to know in order to make better decisions. So what big decisions are on the table in 2022 for both people and grizzlies? One of the real challenges that Montanans are going to face as we come into just the next couple of years is that while we here in the state are dealing with a very rapidly growing population of grizzly bears that are coming into places where we haven't seen them for generations, and a lot of Montanans are very upset and in many cases frightened by that, and want to have some sense of control over this situation. Montana attitudes about grizzly bears are really different from national attitudes about grizzly bears. And because in the United States, grizzly bears and other wildlife are what are called a public trust, every citizen of the United States has an ownership interest and a responsibility for taking care of these animals. But not everybody in the United States might have them in their driveway. And so we need to help our local readership, who has incredible influence over the fate of these bears, get a better understanding of what national interests lie with bear management and how that may conflict or coexist with our local needs. Right. So... I think to better, I think to help listeners better understand how we, as Montanans in particular, live and interact with grizzly bears today, it might be important to provide a little historical context as to what our human bear relationships looked like a long time ago versus today. Um, so, what does history tell us about where grizzlies roamed before European settlers arrived and? Maybe how did they react when they first discovered them? Grizzly bears used to extend in the lower 48 states from the Canadian to the Mexican border. Everywhere west of the 100th meridian, pretty much uh, the North Dakota line all the way down to Texas, we had grizzly bears. An estimated 50,000 of them all over that territory. 
Lewis and Clark were some of the first uh, white explorers to extensively write about them. And when they crossed the what's now the uh, North Dakota border and entered Montana, they were running into grizzly bears on an almost daily basis. And they were a totally novel and really frightening challenge for them. Um, that was 1804-05. Within the next 50 years, white settlers had pretty much taken over the American West and begun the process of disinheriting the Indian tribes that had claimed that area for millennia beforehand. By the 1880s, we had pretty much fenced off and uh, civilized, you might say, the uh, what used to be grizzly bear country. And then at taxpayer expense, we went on a very vigorous effort to remove the grizzly bears from what we thought was better use of uh, cattle and sheep and wheat raising. We hired people to roam all over the countryside with bags of meat full of strychnine to poison the bears and the wolves and the mountain lions and virtually every other predator that might be a loss to agricultural interests. Uh, we had some bizarre occasions in Montana where um, we would come up with exciting ideas like rolling uh, honey-soaked burlap uh, full of blasting caps and leave them out as bait and hope that a bear would literally blow its head off. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a very bloody, uh, very unsympathetic removal of a creature all over the Rocky Mountain West with literally one historical exception, and that was Yellowstone National Park where the park supervisors in the 1880s actually wrote about getting rid of the wolves and lions, but specifically leaving out garbage for the grizzly bears because the tourists liked them so much. And what sort of crowds did that draw? How did that maybe influence people's early perceptions about grizzly bears and watching them in their habitat or definitely not so natural habitat? Well, this, this is where we get things like Yogi the Bear. This is where we get Grizzly Adams. This is where we get Gentle Ben and this whole mythology of the Grizzly Bear as a, uh, either the, uh, the entertaining clown of the wilderness or the, the spirit animal of some particularly uh, well-tuned uh, adventurer explorers. Uh, it's also where we get the Night of the Grizzlies, the uh, uh, garbage-habituated bears in Glacier Park that uh, we had two grizzlies kill two young women on the same night in two different campgrounds uh, in 1967. And it was incidents like that that really blew up the whole notion of what we thought was natural and what we thought was uh, wild country in our national parks and our wilderness areas. Um, had to do with what we thought about how we were managing the bears there. Uh, we used to set up, um, uh, not scaffolds, but bleachers around the garbage pits in Yellowstone and Glacier Parks. Wow. And people would go out after dinner and watch the bears come in to eat their leftovers. And, and that was entertainment. 
um, until the late 1960s. And then we realized that uh, we were creating a problem that was only going to get worse. And in getting rid of it, we nearly got rid of the last grizzly bears we had. When they closed the dumps in Glacier and Yellowstone Park, those food, human food habituated bears had no other food supplies to go for. And so they immediately started looking in the picnic areas and campgrounds of the national parks. And the result was at least 130 bears were killed by park rangers in the next two years after they closed the dumps in the late 60s. Wow. So um, in less than 200 years, we saw this incredible wild animal um, that roamed its original range basically reduced to an About animal. About 600 animals. Yes, down to 600 animals that largely lived off human garbage. That's, that's crazy. Um, and what happened after humans had this reckoning and then we decided to close the dumps, what kind of happened after that, I guess? So the 1970s was the real sort of high point of the whole United States environmental movement. We passed the, um, we created the Environmental Protection Agency under Richard Nixon. We passed the Clean Air and Clean Water Acts. We passed the Wilderness Act. We passed the Endangered Species Act in 1973. And then in 1975, we put the grizzly bear on it because we had, as I said, barely 600 animals, and we're not even certain of that number, down from 50,000. But all of that environmental legislation in the early 70s triggered a backlash by the end of the decade. Um, we wound up with things like the Sagebrush Rebellion and various other uh, political pushback from a lot of the extractive industries in logging and mining and, and ranching and whatnot that all of a sudden had to deal with a whole lot more regulation and a whole lot more constriction because we wanted to uh, save grizzly bears and snail darters and spotted owls and various other creatures that were really on the short end of a lot of this development. And so it became a very politicized fight, and that fight has uh, swung in the pendulum back and forth, and we are in the middle of a big swing right now and that's part of the reason we decided to go after this story. Right, and I think part of human effort to really, you know, replenish these grizzly bear populations, I think that a lot of our readers are familiar with is the concept of recovery zones. Can you talk about maybe when those came to be and what those are? So to recover the grizzly bear, we had to get a whole bunch of different agencies all to work together on the same plan. We had the Forest Service, we had the National Park Service, we had state fish and game departments, we had Bureau of Reclamation and Bureau of uh, Land Management. We had all of these different groups who had a stake in the bears and what activities might either hurt or help them. We also tried to figure out where we still had any bears. And the result was the creation of six ecosystems or recovery areas, the biggest of which is the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, which is a, a big territory surrounding Yellowstone National Park. 
physically the second biggest is the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem in Montana's Northern Rocky Mountains. It's slightly smaller than the Greater Yellowstone, but it actually has more bears in it, and it extends from roughly Glacier Park down to Missoula. So those are the two big bear recovery areas, and between them they've got about 2,000 bears now. The other four areas, uh, one is called the Cabinet Yak, and it's up in northwestern Montana. The Selkirk area in northern Idaho, each of those only have about 50 grizzly bears. And then there is the North Cascades area in Washington and the Bitterroot ecosystem on the Montana-Idaho border, and those two have no confirmed resident grizzlies. But all of these areas did used to support a lot of grizzly bears, and the assumption is that we can either maintain what we've got there or use those areas as a place, uh, as a source for future bears. Okay. And what sort of challenges have emerged throughout the past few decades as we've worked to recover these bears? Um, As you mentioned, we went from 600 to maybe a couple thousand. What sort of growing pains has that caused? The biggest problem is the idea of a recovery area sort of assumes that there's a boundary that for whatever reason, this is a good place for bears and outside of it is not a good place for bears. If you think back to Lewis and Clark, they ran into grizzly bears from North Dakota to the Rocky Mountains. In other words, all of Montana's central plains and grasslands. When they got into the mountains, the bears disappeared from the journals. So how many recovery areas do we have in Montana's or Wyoming's Great Plains? Zero. Second problem is we've got these recovery areas. We've got bears developing populations inside them. There is no fence around them, and the bears don't have any reason to think that they have to stay inside them. So when, for whatever reason, bears start leaving these areas and going into places that they haven't been for a generation or in some cases a century or more, then all of a sudden people are saying, why is this bear here now? Aren't they supposed to be in this you know, blue area on the map that's their ecosystem? <laughs> and, and undoing that presumption, undoing that idea that um, there's some magic reason why a bear should be in Glacier Park but not outside Glacier Park is part of the scientific and political problem that we've got to come to better grips with. Right, and the other side of that, you know, is as grizzly bears have expanded outside of these recovery zones, you know, humans, as a lot of us have seen here in the last couple of years, especially our population continues to explode as well, kind of backing up towards those recovery zones almost, and definitely into areas where grizzly bears were not as common as they are now. Um, so this is a good kind of transition to Rob, your introduction story for this series kind of leads in with a couple of very distinct human bear conflicts that I think a lot of readers are pretty familiar with through your coverage and other people's coverage throughout the state. Um, Can we define what a conflict is specifically and provide kind of a range of what those conflicts look like? This is the real challenge of, of living with grizzly bears. So we looked at at three bears that kind of 
show the, the rainbow of, of different conflicts you can have. The first one I wanted to look at uh, became known as Monica, and it was a 20-something-year-old grizzly sow up in the North Fork of the Flathead on the edge of Glacier Park that had been a, a very successful non-problem bear for almost all of her life until about three years ago when she had a litter of cubs and those cubs and she started getting into garbage in the Pole Bridge area on the edge of Glacier Park. And this became such a habituated problem that the uh, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Park game managers captured her two cubs and killed them in hopes that it was just the cubs that were the problem and then she would go off and, and uh, go back to her uh, polite ways. However, the next year she had another litter of three cubs and she was good that year, but the following year they were all still together and they started getting into serious trouble, ripping the sides out of campers and breaking into horse trailers full of locked garbage and otherwise uh, getting into conflict. And so her entire family group was killed this summer. Now Felicia was a grizzly sow with cubs down in the Jackson Hole area. Felicia wasn't doing anything wrong, and still, as far as we know, hasn't done anything wrong. Hasn't been getting into garbage, hasn't been getting into chicken coops or anything. What she does is hang out on the side of a major pass leading into the Jackson Hole Grand Teton National Park area, and hundreds of cars show up and create traffic jams on the highway, all trying to get a picture of her. So the conflict there is not the bear, it's the people who are blocking the road and threatening to get themselves hurt by getting too close to shoot an Instagram selfie with this <laughs> cute bear family that will tear your head off if you overstep your bounds. So that's a totally different kind of conflict. And then on July 6th this year, we had the classic nightmare conflict, a bear in Ovando, uh, attacked a woman sleeping in her tent in the middle of, and Ovando, by the way, is a town of about 100 people, but she was nevertheless in what you would definitely call the town square. She was 20 feet from the street, right next to the post office, across the street from the general store and the cafe and the fire department. You can't get any more civilized in Ovando than that. <laughs> nevertheless, uh, this bear um, attacked her in her tent and killed her in the middle of the night. Um, that bear was caught about a day or so later and killed. Um, but that's the, the ultimate human-bear conflict is a fatality. I find it kind of interesting that we did not name this bear. And again, this kind of gets to our imagination of what do we think bears are and what are our problems with them. Is it bears stealing our stuff? Is it us getting too close to bears and their stuff? Is it wherever, whoever is too close, that one of us ends up getting hurt? Right, and through all of these different conflicts, whether it's a bear as a traffic hazard or a bear rummaging through some garbage or in that Ovando case, as you mentioned, um, a lot of how people imagine bears and how they react to situations like that will drive how we manage them in some part. 
Um, so through your reporting, what have you found out about, you know, where do we want grizzlies to be? Where do we want them to stay? And, and where do grizzlies actually want to be? Those two things um, are the real nut of the problem. Grizzlies want to be where there is food that they can get with the least amount of conflict. And they see conflict as fights with other bears, as fights with us, as how hard do I have to work to get this particular food. Um, It's really easy to mow your way through a huckleberry patch. It's really hard to chase down a bison. Um, So you, uh, as a bear, make some choices about which place you want to be and how you want to spend your time getting it. Uh, Chickens, it turns out, are really easy for bears to get. And so when we humans start thinking, gee, it'd be a great idea to, you know, live off the land a little bit more and have some uh, free-range eggs for breakfast every morning that we grab out of our backyard, uh, the side effect is we've just turned our backyard into bear country. And as we are seeing these increasing populations of bears that are finding food sources with incredible ability over hundreds of miles, which they will remember from year to year uh, and come back to, just like you come back to the same aisle in the grocery store looking for your breakfast cereal in the morning. Um, we've, we've got a learning curve to either uh, get ahead of and, and adapt our actions in bear country, or we got to figure out a way to defend ourselves from the bears that are going to be cruising around that area looking for food there. So who do we consider the expert in this situation, right? Um, so who, who do we turn to, or should we turn to at least, for information on an animal that a lot of us haven't encountered ever, and some of us... You know, maybe they've encountered once, but the overarching question is, you know, who do we turn to knowing that grizzlies might one day show up in my backyard, even though they're not here now? Who's the expert on that? There are an awful lot of really professional biologists and bear behavior specialists who spend a lot of time with the bears, figuring out what bears do at what time of year, under what circumstances, and that information is really valuable and well-developed. It is totally different from the kinds of people who make laws or who set up policies or try to draw maps about bear behavior and what our relationship with bears ought to be on that more political social level. And one of the real challenges for the existence of bears, and this is actually built into bear conservation strategies. This is stuff that the scientists and the politicians have got together and written down, is what's called social license. Grizzly bears need to have some sort of social license to coexist with us. And the real problem with that is, and they actually say this in the documents, we don't know what social license is. We can't define it, we can't measure it, but we know we got to have it. So, again, why we put this series together is because learning the biology and learning the history and learning 
the politics of grizzly bears is the raw material out of which we decide what that social license is going to look like. And until we absorb that and digest it and get conversant with it, we're never going to be able to say, this is how we want to build this relationship. Right. So a lot of our listeners here and a lot of our readers, right, aren't necessarily politicians. A lot of them probably aren't biologists who have studied this for a long time, right? So why is it that every single reader and every average person living in Grizz country should really tune into this series? The most simple decision that is coming at us right now is Montana's governor has joined with the governors of Idaho and Wyoming to ask for grizzlies to be removed from the Endangered Species Act. At the same time that the federal government under the Biden administration has made it fairly clear that they would be perfectly happy to keep grizzly bears on the Endangered Species Act for the foreseeable future. This is going to be a political and a social fight that is going to work out over the next year. And Montanans, by dint of the fact that we are the closest to grizzly bears of anybody in the 50 states other than Alaska, are going to be the people that everybody else in the country looks to when they say, what are we supposed to know about bears? Right. And so my colleagues at the newspaper are doing our best to give you the homework. All right, Rob, well, thank you so much. And our series, Grizzlies and Us, kicks off on January 9th, and it will be a series that runs for two weeks over the course of five days each of those weeks. And um, we'll be here through Big Sky Lead to give you some insights into stories as they come out. Thank you.